Welcome to episode three of this second season of Idiom America. In the first season, I took a look at presidential idioms, or idioms that originated or were popularized by U.S. presidents, including ones like nip it in the bud, squatter, administration, worth his salt, keep the ball rolling, twiddling one's thumbs, house divided, spoil system, strange bedfellows, pork barrel spending, cronyism, kid gloves, and of course that most widely used idiom, one that's used worldwide in a variety of languages, okay. And presidential elections and utterances get a lot of attention, so it's no surprise that new inventions and variations on language uh, come from them. And we ended with part four of that series looking at Kid Glove Benjamin Harrison, that short scion who liked to campaign in a pair of dandy white kid gloves. And Harrison was the 23rd president, and we already covered number 22, Grover Cleveland of Buffalo fame, who also got elected again as the 24th president. So we're on to number 25, William McKinley. And there's another Buffalo connection there, as McKinley was assassinated while attending the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. And by the time he was shot in September of 1901, he'd already served one term and was several months into his second term. Uh, and he's probably best remembered for taking the United States to war against Spain in 1898 and thereby acquiring a global empire that included Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. And his election in 1896 was pretty exciting stuff as he campaigned on the importance of maintaining the gold standard, while his opponent, William Jennings Bryan, as candidate for both the Democratic and Populist parties, called for a bimetallic standard of gold and silver, as we talked about a bit in episode 15 involving silver idioms and the free silver movement, uh, talking about Brian's cross the gold speech in which he railed against the gold standard and concluded his speech, you shall not crossify mankind upon a cross of gold. And it's worth taking a closer look at the statesman, lawyer, and politician William Jennings Bryan here. Although he was never elected president, he was really interesting and in, in, influential. Uh, plus, most per- pertinently for purposes of this podcast, he coined a great idiom in 1914, rock the boat. And his full quote that spawned this idiom was, the man who rocks the boat ought to be stoned when he gets back on shore. And the meaning here is clear. Rocking the boat is not only stirring things up, challenging the status quo, disturbing the balance, making some waves, Uh, but doing it in an unwanted way, uh, which is why you usually hear this one in its negative context of don't rock the boat. Uh, Stoning somebody for rocking it is maybe a little extreme, but that one, I guess, can be chalked up to rhetorical flourish. Uh, Not that Brian was adverse to stirring up some controversy. Uh, He was known as the great commoner and the boy orator, and he was three times the Democrats' nominee for president. He was a crusader for free silver and an an opponent of American imperialism and an advocate for progressive causes like a federal income tax, food and drug laws, ban on corporate financing of campaigns, the direct election of senators, and the list goes on. Later, though, he became known more for being a proponent of prohibitionism and and religion and anti-Darwinism, culminating in his participation in the 1925 Scopes Monkey Trial, in which Tennessee prosecuted a high school biology teacher for teaching evolution. And some quotes along those lines that were attributed to Brian were, if if I have to give up either religion or education, we should give up education. And if the Bible had said that Jonah swallowed the whale, I would believe it. 
all in all, though, he was a fascinating guy. He was one of the most influential figures of his era. And and since I quoted some from a James McMurtry song last episode, might as well hear too, since Brian is still getting shout-outs well over 100 years later uh, from one of his songs called Out Here in the Middle. Uh, we get Out Here in the Middle, where the center's on the right, and the ghost of William Jennings Bryan preaches every night to save the lonely souls in the dashboard light. I was a little surprised that it was Brian who coined Rock the Boat, as this one just seems like one of those naturally sounding idioms that I'd expected to have been around forever. But looking at Google's Ingram, uh, that great free tool that lets you search for phrases across millions of books, newspapers, etc., going back hundreds of years, all in the matters of matter of seconds, uh, it does appear that this phrase arose right around 1914, so I think Brian does get the credit here. Uh, but back to the guy who beat Brian out for the presidency in 1896 as well as 1900, uh, the Republican William McKinley. Are there any idioms or colorful language that are connected to him? Uh, the, the congressman from last episode, Joe Cannon of uh, Fisher Cut Bait fame, once said about McKinley that he kept his ears so close to the ground that it was full of grasshoppers, uh, meaning that he paid a lot of attention to what the public thought and, and his decisions were driven by public opinion. Uh, but this attempt at idiom coinage never really caught on, although it's colorful language nonetheless. Um, and the same thing with McKinley's A Full Dinner Pail, which was his campaign slogan in the 1900 presidential election, meant to emphasize the purported prosperity of his first term. Seems like kind of a modest ambition, uh, just a full dinner pail. But it's good enough to get him elected, I suppose. Uh, not good enough to stick around in the popular lexicon, though. But as far as I'm aware, there's no name-dropping of McKinley and songs a century later, uh, like Brian either. Uh, so sad to say, but McKinley's greatest contribution to that popular lexicon was probably his untimely demise, as this allowed his vice president, Teddy Roosevelt, to take over. Uh, because Teddy, or TR, was without a doubt the most colorful presidential con contributor to the language. And he was a master of coining new phrases, many of which are still around today. Uh, we looked at Teddy's use of pussyfooting as one example in episode 8 dealing with cat idioms. There are a lot more, so let's dig in. First, we have the bully pulpit, which means a conspicuous position that provides an opportunity to speak out and be listened to. And the most powerful and well-known such position in the U.S. is, of course, the presidency. And you need only think of how much the media would cover everything Trump or, or Obama did or said when they were in office and and how much that dropped off once they left, um, which is one reason some political scientists think that the bully pulpit is one of the most important aspects of a president's power. And this idiom comes from the time uh, that Roosevelt was sitting at his desk one day reading a forthcoming message to Congress uh, to a few friends when at the close of a paragraph that he called a distinctly ethical character, he wheeled about and said, I suppose my critics will call that preaching, but I've got such a bully pulpit. And this Roosevelt quote got public, published in the New York Times and became a term that we still widely use today. Uh, some people think, and I, I all confess that I was one of them, that the meaning of bully here is that of bullying, browbeating somebody with bluster, menacing. So the, the bully pulpit simply meant a powerful 
presidential platform that could be used to overwhelm the public. Uh, but it turns out that TR was using bully here in its meaning of superb or wonderful, which was a, a more common usage for bully at that time, and that makes a little more sense. And historians credit Roosevelt for changing the nation's political system uh, by permanently placing the bully pulpit of the presidency at center stage and making character uh, of the president as, as important as the issues. And I won't attempt to give any kind of uh, comprehensive biography of Teddy here as, as the man led a full productive life and there's so much to cover. But he was, without a doubt, I think it's fair to say, one of our greatest presidents. Uh, he was known for his conservationism and protection of the environment, labor reforms, trust busting and control and regulation of corporations, advocacy for more direct democracy, winning the Nobel Peace Prize for his role in helping to end the Russia-Japan War. The list goes on and on. But with respect to TR's rhetorical success, which is the focus of this podcast, one reason for it was that he developed powerfully reciprocal relationships with members of the national press. He called them by their first names, invited them to meals, took questions from them at any time, brought them aboard his private rail car in his trips around the country, where he would address the crowds that would gather with homespun language, aphorisms, and direct moral appeals. And add in the fact that before he was president, he was an author and a historian with a lifelong voracious love of reading, and you get a recipe for an idiom-generating machine, uh, as the press would widely publicize his inventive utterances. And one idiom that arose out of that relationship with the press was muckraking or muckraker, which referred to reform-minded journalists, writers, and photographers in the progressive era from roughly the 1890s to the 1920s, uh, who went around trying to expose corruption and wrongdoing in established in institutions, uh, often through sensationalist publications. But people, I guess, who were willing to get down in the muck, the icky stuff, and rake it and turn it over for the public good. And this term comes from John Bunyan's 1678 Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, and it refers to the man with the muckrake who's presented as a man who could look no way but downward, with the muckrake in his hand, who was offered a celestial crown for his muckrake, but who would neither look up nor regard the crown he was offered, but continued to rake to himself the filth of the floor. And so that's set forth, I guess, as an example of a man whose vision is fixed on the carnal uh, instead of the spiritual. And Pilgrim's Progress was nothing if not influential. It's been translated into more than 200 languages, never been out of print in 350 years, and has also been cited as the first novel written in English. And according to one expert, uh, anyway, there's no book in English apart from the Bible to equal Bunyan's masterpiece for the range of its readership or its influence on writers as diverse as C.S. Lewis, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Herman Melville, Charles Dickens, Louisa May Alcott, George Bernard Shaw, William Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Mark Twain, John Steinbeck, and the list goes on, I'm sure. But it took Roosevelt to turn the man with the muckrake from Pilgrim's Progress into an idiom which he did when he referred to the character in a 1906 speech when he said, The men with the muckrakes are often indispensable to the well-being of society, but only if they know when to stop raking the muck. He was referring there to uh, those progressives like uh, Upton 
Sinclair, who shone a light on things like unsafe working conditions, child labor, corporate monopolies, political machines, etc. And it's since evolved into its modern usage, where it generally references investigative or watchdog journalism. And sometimes that can have a pejorative slant by referring to those who, who seek to cause scandal for the sake of scandal. Uh, Mollycoddle is another one of those that maybe didn't originate with Roosevelt, but he used it in a famous way that propelled it into a different and more popular usage. Uh, the term originally arose in the early 19th century in Great Britain, where it was used as a derogatory term for an overly effeminate man. And it came from the term molly, which had been used since perhaps the late, since perhaps the late 1600s as an insult not unlike sissy, and coddle, uh, meaning to boil slowly and gently, like you would coddle some eggs. But one of the most famous uh, uses of the word dates back to a 1907 address by Roosevelt to Harvard students when he warned them about becoming too fastidious, too sensitive to take part in the rough hurly-burly of the actual work of the world, going on to decry colleges that turn out mollycoddles instead of vigorous men. And he clearly liked the word, uh, as he was also quoted describing the sport of baseball as a mollycoddle game. Well, I guess it wasn't tough or violent enough for his liking. And nowadays, the term is typically used in the context of the welfare state by those who feel that some are being pampered by too much government assistance or mollycoddled by the government. You know, not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps enough. And, and while we're here, let's take a quick look at that one. Uh, the image of reaching down and trying to defy gravity and Newton's laws by grabbing your bootstraps and trying to lift yourself up off the ground is, is such a great one. Uh, Where did it, it come from? Uh, there, some think that its origin does have a connection to physics, and they point to a late 1800s physics school book that contained the example question, why cannot a man lift himself by pulling up on his bootstraps? And others point to German author Rudolf Erich Raspe, who wrote about a character who pulled himself out of a swamp by pulling his own hair. And originally the phrase did have the straightforward meaning of attempting to do something absurd or impossible until roughly the 1920s when it started to evolve toward the current understanding uh, of doing something without any outside help all on your own. And it still has a somewhat sarcastic tinge to it. Uh, so it's, it's a good one, I think, on all political sides for people to use. Uh, when people tell the socioeconomically disadvantaged to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, they generally mean to imply that socioeconomic advancement is something that everyone should be able to do, even though it might be difficult. While those on the other side of it politically can take comfort in the fact that the action is physically impossible, so it's kind of silly to expect people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And speaking of all sides of the political spectrum, if you go far enough to the edges of those sides, you're bound to encounter the lunatic fringe, which is used to characterize members of a political or social, social movement as extremists with eccentric or fanatical views. And this is another idiom that Roosevelt, uh, while he may not have coined it, certainly popularized to the point where it's safe to say it wouldn't exist in its current form without his usage of it. He actually used it a few times, uh, usually along the lines of referring to the edges of the progressive movement. Uh, the first cited usage is in 1913, 
There is apt to be a lunatic fringe among the votaries of any forward movement. And another usage not much long after that. As I've already said, there is a lunatic fringe to every reform movement. And this one has an origin that surprised me. Uh, it arose in the 1870s to refer to a, a woman's bangs. Uh, you know, the, the hair that hangs down over the forehead, <laughs> which I guess was considered a wild hairstyle at the time. Uh, from the Wheeling Daily Register out of West Virginia, I suppose. Uh, July 24th, 1875, for example. Lunatic fringe is the name given to the fashion of cropping the hair and letting the ends hang down over the forehead. Uh, so I think you have to give uh, Teddy the credit here for taking uh, this term and putting it to a completely different use for which it's known today. Uh, but I know I won't hear it the same way again, and we'll think back to the day when a woman having some bangs was apparently considered akin to lunacy. And another one kind of similar to lunatic fringe in some ways is loose cannon, which refers to an uncontrolled or unpredictable person who causes damage to their own team, faction, political party, etc. And the literal meaning of this one has been around a while, ever since the days of wooden ships with cannons. It refers to a cannon that breaks loose from its moorings on a ship during battle or storm, which has the potential to cause serious damage to the ship and her crew. But it wasn't until the turn of the 19th century when this one started to become popular, which is when uh, TR was publicized while using it, not to refer to a political, political opponent, but to himself. And this was shortly after becoming president, when knowing that he would only be 51 years old after two terms with plenty of energy left to burn, he told his friend, the journalist William Allen White, that he didn't want to be the old cannon loose on the deck in the storm. And T.R. was kind of prophetic there about himself, as after he left the presidency in 1909, he told reporters that he felt as fit as a bull moose and founded a new party with that name. And, and, and many blame him for causing a schism in the Republican Party. You know, he was a bit of a loose cannon causing damage to his own team, uh, some would argue. And you still, still see this one coming up, uh, continuing until today in uh, presidential politics. Uh, for example, in the summer of 2016, after Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton had clinched their nominations, Hillary threw down the gauntlet by saying about Trump that, quote, an unqualified loose cannon is within reach of the most powerful job in the world. And a couple months later, Trump returned fire by tweeting that, quote, Hillary Clinton should not be given national security briefings in that she is a loose cannon with extraordinarily bad judgment and instincts. Uh, so maybe Trump was trying to coin an idiom of his own with that loose cannon, you know, L-O-S-E cannon instead of loose cannon. Uh, wouldn't be surprised, but uh, given Kofefe and, and the fact that he also misspelled instincts in the same tweet, it's more likely that he was just trying to call her loose cannon as well. Oh, well, as I flash back to that politically divisive time, it feels like that that's probably more than enough presidential politics for today. So that'll bring us to about the end of this episode uh, in the series on presidential idioms. But before I end, I do want to give a shout out to the Teddy Roosevelt Memorial in D.C., which takes up an entire island in the middle of the 
Potomac, and which I really like for its connection to and immersion in nature. And the memoria portion of it itself has a list of 15 quotes which appear on granite monoliths, and these fall into four categories, nature, youth, manhood, and the state. And I'll end the episode with the nature category because it's for Teddy Roosevelt's conservation legacy that I'm most grateful. Uh, as president, he established 150 national forests, 51 federal bird reserves, four national game preserves, five national parks, and 18 national monuments on over 230 million acres of public land. Anyway, here's what part of uh, granite monolith on Teddy Roosevelt Island has to say about nature. There is a delight in the hardy life of the open. There are no words that can tell the hidden spirit of the wilderness, that can reveal its mystery, its melancholy, and its charm. Indeed. Well, that does it for this episode. Thanks for listening.